Welcome to the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. This is Bruce. This is John. This is Blix. This is Trav. This is Jay. This is Paul. Welcome to the TriTac Games Podcast, your podcast of going out and getting a bunch of your friends and living together in the woods for the rest of your life and liking it. This week, we're talking about colonies, creating colonies, especially in the fringe-worthy game, but in any game that you might like where you go out and not necessarily create a colony in a wilderness, but definitely away from your home world, your home culture, or anything else like that. Now, we see this primarily in Fringeworthy as a late campaign topic because there are just so few Fringeworthy to create a colony from. They're mostly going to be used for the infrastructure of IDET and also for uh, the explorers. But there are a couple of possibilities. If you decide to run a campaign where you're primarily dealing with the Pangolisk or the Kegak or, yeah, the Blizzness, where they are all universally fringeworthy, then you could easily get together enough people to create your own colony. But I don't know anybody who's actually interested in doing that. Any of you guys ever had a group of people who wanted to just do solely one of those monoculture type of colonies? But it's but I would say it's saying you'd run you you would encounter you know so yeah this is this is the, the we're sponsoring a colony for the so and so and so and so and they're on alt plus twenty nine uh, forty nine uh, whatever you know uh, five you know five and he's like oh okay. And it's a colony, and you're, you know, it may, it may be an existing, it may be an existing colony of walkers. For all we know, they just showed up and decided this is a great place to settle. You know, they don't want to walk no more. I did have one friend. I actually do know one person who moved off a commune out in Colorado. He was a little weird, a little bit of one of those kind of like gun nutty survival type. They they all wanted to go and and go off the grid and get away from the government and just kind of disappear off into the woods. But yeah, other than that, I don't know anybody who who actually wanted to do that. Well, most of the time, I think that those particular characters would probably be used more along the lines of support people, especially the Blizzness with their ability to carry their good skills in foraging and throwing rocks at predators. Those make pretty good support people at a colony if you wanted to put one together. And blissing them out. Bliss. And blissing them out, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Keeping everybody happy while they're having to put up with all the things that they're not getting, that they're used to getting, not getting their video servers and not getting their latest music and all those other things and all the privations that come with setting up a colony away from what you're used to. Yeah, having that constant blizz, you know. Uh, uh, a blizzness blissing going on. As we all know, a, a gram is better than a dam, right? Hey, don't knock it. Okay, have some alfalfa. 
<laughs> Blizzness seemed to make the perfect child minders. Child minders? Sure. Blizzness herding the kindergarten from one side of the colony to the other. I can see it now. You get enough blizzness around. You got people like, why do you hang out this community with these guys? Like, oh, man, it's so it's just so chill. Man, they hit me again with one of those, baby. <laughs> <laughs> you see them just coming up and leaning against the blizzness and just kind of light, draping themselves over. Uh, excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse me. <laughs> it's just like rubbing his head. Like, oh, you guys are great. <laughs> Do I rub my head on you? No. <laughs> yeah. Let me find out that that trunk is pretty good for goosing. So we see this thing of colonies as being more or less of a late campaign type of issue where we've either been able to breed enough fringeworthy using the uh, if you're pregnant and goes through the portal, your kid becomes fringeworthy or the ability to attune to a crystal and making you fringe-worthy, or even possibly they've discovered the mythical method of making everybody fringe-worthy. The point is, is that it's something that seems to only be likely to happen in the late campaign. So, Blix, why have a colony? You can have guys who've been traveling on the fringe paths. They are quite stressful. They can be, at least with the adventures we've been having. So if you've got a bunch of guys that have been having any kind of adventures like we've been having, they might want to just just tune out. They've had enough excitement. They've had enough. You know, you might say, well, no, they would they would miss it. And it's just like, not some of the adventures I've been on. I, I think they'd be ready. Ready to go there and, and rest their gray hairs, even though they don't age that quickly because of the fringe pads. But, you know, it's like a retirement home, like a place to just chill out. One of the adventures that, that we ran on, and, and it was I actually retired the character after this adventure because it was just I, I just couldn't see him wanting to interact with the rest of the you know with Idet and the rest of them. A couple of Mellers had gotten into Idet and infiltrated it. Basically, in a big organization like that, you just you never knew where a Meller or something was going to turn up. You know, a doppelganger was going to turn up. So he he didn't trust the system anymore, and he, and he found that I was just like you know with, with the experience that he went through, I don't think he could find himself trusting any big government system like that anymore because you never know where these guys are, and even though they could be in a colony, it's a smaller colony, and it would be easier to you know to get away from that. You wouldn't be so much trapped in that. Another thing I could think of is is a maybe even a temporary retreat, like maybe people come and go. It's kind of like a an open community where. You know, you just want to take like an extended vacation. Like maybe you go there for a month or six months at a time just to go and, and deprogram. A rest stop, basically. Run run by a few retired fringe-worthy uh, from wherever. You know, they don't have to be Ida. They can be from wherever. If it's, Especially if it's late campaign, you may have people who have never seen Earth Prime in their lifetime. You know, so this could be a, a place where, yeah, you come in, you rest up, you have to take, take some time off. You know, take it easy, put your feet up, you know, we'll take care of you. You know, so the real colonists are actually aren't the people who show up to, for rest. It's the people living there. You know, all the service people, they're the ones really making it into a colony, you know. Well, yeah, that's what I was thinking. I mean, you might have a couple permanent members there, you know, people who, who basically stay there almost all the time. But then you'd have transients, you know, maybe, maybe like kind of like the way Hawaii is, you know, uh, a good 50 percent of the people there are transient. Like Hawaii, this. You know, you could have a 50% or greater transient population. So you have a, a core group of people who actually live there. And these might be your older people who, who have decided to give up their travels. And then 
you know, you have people who come in for vacation or just visiting. And and a colony like this, I almost guarantee you, wouldn't even probably wouldn't even be fifty percent human, or maybe maybe be fifty percent human because humans seem to dominate the French pass in most campaigns. But they'd be all over. You know, you'd probably have a couple of Victorians come in and visit. You'd have old men that would stop in from time to time. There's the slarg that that hangs out by the campfire and eats all the scraps um, and gets in the trash. <laughs> yeah, but, but is that a good idea? What do you mean? It's good. Is this good scraps? Yes. <laughs> if you have too much variety, you end up with having to go pretty far afield to find mating partners. I was sort of thinking that that kind of set up more as a uh, kind of a fringe path truck stop, a place where word got around that it was a safe place to stop and talk to the people and buy stuff and hang out. And so you'd have, you know, a group of people near the portal who were used to fringe travelers and set up to sell them stuff and provide services. And you'd see most of the newcomers and most of the weirdos would pretty much stay in that area. And then outside of that area, it would be a different story. Most of the interesting people, most of the story-worthy people would be coming or going on their business. Yeah, and like, oh. most, like most truck stops, mating issues are not a problem. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, we can, get, we can get way too literal about lot lizards in this. <laughs> yeah. When I think of a colony, I'm actually thinking of something that isn't sitting right next to the portal. I'm actually thinking about something that, I mean, yeah, you want to be close enough to go and go back to wherever you're getting your supplies from, to, if, you know, if your colony isn't self-supporting. But, I mean, it just depends on why your colony was created. If you are, in fact, trying to literally take over a world, as in, you know, just, just explore out on an empty world or a world in which there's another culture, then you're going to be wanting to use this as this as a seed group to go and continue to move out further and further. Well, I would think that you'd want to build up kind of a settlement around the portal or near the portal with easy access and then let people disperse from there as, as suited them and as they were able to fill a role. Because uh, as you got more population in that first settlement, you'd get to see more of a division of labor and more complex uh, things available for people who were there. I guess a real big question is, what purpose does this colony serve? What are we trying to do with it when we set it up? That will drive a lot of the rest of the decisions about how it's planted, about what you're doing with it, how it's defended. Uh, you could have a colony that was set up to you know, be a hidey hole, a bolt hole, where Earth civilization could survive in case you know the Melor destroyed the Earth or something. And they'd want to be far away from the portal and not easily found and well-defended. A trade colony would be want to be right near the portal so people could come and go easily. There's an open box there near what is the purpose of this colony that drives this setup. Right. A lot of the original colonies in North America were there to exploit local resources. And look at us now. We're now a major importer of resources. Which your colonies for will change over time. A lot of times when we go to worlds, the most interesting thing in the world is not going to be within five feet of the portal. It's probably going to be some distance away. My players know that one very well. How far did you guys travel? <laughs> Something like 2,800 miles. Yeah. <laughs> How did your characters travel? In the Muscovy. Ah. What's a Muscovy? 
it's the uh, fictional six-wheeled uh, armored Russian vehicle. Ah. And a very large fuel tank. Strapped down with a lot of Mongolian goods. Yeah. <laughs> nice of those people to build roads or live in a flat place where you could drive a truck. Actually, there are roads. This is Mongolia. This, this was Golden Dawn, go, the Golden Hold word. It's the Silk Road. Yeah, the Silk Road doesn't have any turn lanes on it. It's the wider patch of dirt that you know, that doesn't have stuff growing in it. It's about three camels wide, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the longest distance I've ever traveled, uh, not me, but in a game, was about a million miles. Ooh. We basically outfitted a giant dirigible with solar panels and props, and we would crack water for hydrogen and keep it up. And we basically drove pretty continuously for about a, a year or so to do that million miles. Where, wow. where were you? A, a flat Earth? A world ship. It was out on, on star platforms. Wow. Like a Dyson sphere? It was about a million miles long. It was 250,000 miles across. A big tube open on one end and closed on the other. Oh, a big anneal cylinder, basically. The opening at the back was high enough so that it actually was outside the atmosphere. Uh-huh. If you got high enough, you get into zero atmosphere, and you could fly your ships uh, in and out of that back part. And, of course, the very center of this was zero G. Yeah, it sounds like a really, really enormously huge O'Neill cylinder. Yeah. My players weren't very sophisticated, so they didn't know about the whole issue about having a circular object to be in the center of it and having gravity issues. So I just simply, we hand-waved that and said, look, you know, th- th- this was built by the Tamellar, and they've got some things going on to basically prevent you know, those kinds of problems. Uh, the gravity was actually literally from mass. There was about the, the equivalent of the width of the Earth in the outer shell of this tube. Wow. Yeah. And what was it made of so that it didn't just squish into a big ball? It was a honeycombed structure made of tamellar metal and uranium. Honeycomb's big. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the idea was that whenever they got to wherever they were supposed to go, then they could get, they would dig down in and take all of that uranium and use it to power some lower-grade power sources until they got established on their new world. Well, I got I to gotta give you this. You don't think small. No. And the problem with the, in that particular adventure was is that the, it was adrift. Uh, the, the crew of the ship had been killed, and so their job was to, after they got to the front and got to talk to the ship's computer, they basically said, hey, you guys got to go out and find me a crew. So they proceeded to have to then go and do a lot of traveling. Mm. Okay. Running some, some very alien aliens. But that'd be some place you want to set up uh, a colony and examine. It's a, it's a big MacGuffin you want to take a look at. Yeah, it's a big, it was a big, big place. It was so big that one of the races was creating a huge ecological disaster. But the place was so big that it was isolated and it didn't cause everybody else to die. It's a longer, narrower ring world that's moving. At nighttime, if you had a telescope, you could see all the twinkling little lights of people living across the way from you, all the way up to up the wall. Look at all the alien civilizations up in the sky. Yeah. Well, that, that's what brings it to mind that you know another good place to set up a colony would be you pop through and you're in the middle of a of a, of a either a Commonwealth or Tamilan city. It's an abandoned. 
but it's more or less intact. You're going to be spending a, your lifetime exa- searching it. Oh, yeah, just with Commonwealth tech alone, people who are skilled in like reverse engineering and just technology in general, oh, yeah, they might as well, okay, we're not going anywhere. I'm going to die researching this. I hate to bring this up, but we run into this with Star Trek. You run into planets that have things where you stop and you look and go, wait, you could spend your whole life doing that. So a lot of times the PCs in, in my Trek games are just there to scout and do an initial pass so that they can relay it to a survey crew that comes in and spends the rest of their lives picking it apart while they go on to the next adventure. That's what our fringeworthy teams are about. It depends on what you want your campaign to be. If you want your campaign to be only exploration, then, of course, this is not a a good solution at all. But if, in fact, is that you want to play on an interesting world in this particular case, then this is one way of of doing it where you're not going to have a reason to be constantly straying out on the fringe pass. I am finding that Fringeworthy is really good for a sandbox game where characters run around in a pretty self-directed manner. It's hard to credibly hook people into plots. It's like if if every portal is right in the middle of something happening that the characters need to resolve, eventually it's going to talk them out of going through portals because they don't want to get involved in somebody else's mess again. But you know, you want to have a storyline, you want to have a through line and something for the characters to actually do. And so it, it's kind of a kind of a tightrope because I find that when I just present uh, player characters with the world, here's a world and you're in it. What do you do now? A lot of people get kind of lost. They kind of say, well, I don't know what I want to do because they're kind of flailing. Yeah. I have that myself as a player. Sometimes I will play in a game where a GM just says, here's something interesting. Go poke it with a stick. And I'll go, da, da, da. Because there's no storyline. Jay, that's a good point. I mean, if they expect something to happen as soon as they come through the portal. If you go through a portal and, like somebody mentioned earlier, the nearest thing was 2,800 miles away, there are a lot of people that don't want to even say, okay, well, you drive through, and because you have to still account for what happens during that time that you travel 2,800 miles. Unless you're in a jet, most fringe vehicles that it would have, it's going to take a long time to travel 2,800 miles to something interesting. So you kind of have to, you know, like Jay said, it's a it's a tightrope where you don't want everything right there at the portal all the time. Yet, if they got to keep traveling, they're just going to go through a portal, see nothing of interest, and like after an hour of exploring, go, how oh, the heck with it, we're going back. Right. You have to give them a story. Yeah, you have to you have to have a map that says uh, something something for you to do here. One of the reasons that you can have a colonies established is to keep an eye on something that is very important or very dangerous. Let's say you went to a world, you went to a portal, and you found yourself in Middle Earth. Keep an eye on Sauron, maybe. Oh, R. I think I'd want to sell tickets to Middle Earth nerds. <laughs> there are worlds in which there are things that are so compelling or scary that you know you just can't not pay attention to it. And so therefore, you know, you come through it's like okay, let's say they 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 did a preliminary examination, they know that there's some gigantic energy being called Sauron out there. Well, okay, let's go in and let's try to set up a, a, a permanent colony. Let's go explore. Let's find, see if the local people can help us. Let's see what we can do to, to either understand 
mitigate or possibly even create an alliance with this thing because you know it might by this point you know they might have you know the a certain group called the Coptics breathing down their neck and maybe they might be will be thinking that going with Sard was a good idea. Use one evil to fight another. Yeah, that all works out. And what could possibly go wrong? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah. But then we do that all the time, though. What's that saying? When you shake hands with the devil, keep one hand firmly on your soul. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure that would happen, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The yeah, enemy or, of my uh, enemy is my friend. Right. Yeah, thank you. Another good one. Could be we, we, you pop into a post-singularity world, and... There's this thing, but and it's doing something. You're not quite sure what, but when Joe went up and touched it, he vanished. Well, nice world. Okay, too bad we can't stay. But now you're afraid it's become fringeworthy because Joe is fringeworthy because it talked back to you in Joe's voice after it sucked him in. Yeah, Joe's become one with the Borg, and we're leaving. Yeah. <laughs> yes, now all the Borg are fringeworthy. Thank you, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> he literally is every man. Joe, you had one job. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so assuming that you really want to create a colony or you want to add them to your game as a kind of a support for your fringeworthy explorations, how do you set it up? And then we're not talking about the nitty-gritty power sources, where to get water and things like that, but how would you set up a colony? We talked about a little bit about what would be the genetic makeup of the colony and possibly the construction crews. Oh, again, that that's what purpose do you want it to serve in the story? What's what's the point here? If they're like guarding the giant MacGuffin, then uh, you're going to want to make it consistent with that, but you're still going to want to leave the PC something to do. So they're going to be armed guards set up to hold the uh, portal against um, against the MacGuffin or its evil forces, and they'll say, oh, hey, PCs, why don't you go check that out for us while we build more concrete fortifications? But what I was talking more about is that would you bring in a whole crew of Demixie to you know, lay your foundations and to build your uh, quanta huts and everything else and possibly... Th- create those barricades against hostile native fauna out of silk and mushed up leaves. I don't know. How much are they charging? If it's also late campaign, by that time, we hopefully will have access to Tremelin plastic extruders or something like that, where we can start making, you know, the walls are made all white plastic. Plastic extruder. That just sounds nasty. Yeah. It's- you go ahead and make your stuff with it. Just don't show it to me. By this point, there's probably a dedicated construction core as there's a transportation core because all through the books it states that there are supply sites mm-hmm. set up somebody's got to go build them yeah fringe cbs yeah that's hilarious i love that idea fringe cbs yeah you know guys who basically i, I don't want to explore I, but you know what you got places you've never been to before and you can build dams and damn rivers and no one will complain about it because there's no one there you know so, somewhere out there there's a strange world untouched by human hands it needs a caterpillar bulldozer driven right through it we need a new parking lot yeah. somebody's got to pave paradise that's right oh, somebody's got to pave Joni yeah, Mitchell, Mitchell yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Mama, mama needs a new strip mine I can actually think of the first place where you whether you see the first colony. The hunting lodge would probably turn into a colony because you got dinosaurs and you got these strange uh, mammals living there at the same time. It might be a tourist mecca. Yeah, I mean, 
as, assuming you could get any sort of fringe tourism industry going on. It also makes sense as the first place that you take a visitor, take them to the hunting lodge instead of taking them right to Earth Prime. That way, if you have to kill them, there's a dinosaur right there to eat the body. <laughs> sure. No evidence. Disposal <laughs> machines. But, you know, you show them the hunting lodge, they go, oh, well, this is the place. We're going to bring our caravan of armored cars down and eliminate this place. You, you, you didn't give away the, the keys of the kingdom right off the, the bat. That leaves another question. An armored caravan of French pirates has just come through the portal. What do you do? You better hope there's someplace to go behind you. Right. Well, that's one reason why I think it's a bad idea to put your colony right next to the portal. But if we're talking late campaign, the, the French pirates, unless they are part of a really large organization, probably aren't going to be that much of a problem anymore. People eventually will figure out to set up checkpoints at the various platforms and shoot the heck out of fringe pirates before they get to any place that uh, can be damaged by shooting. You'd have fire bases set up at that time, you know, you know, on the platforms, and yeah, you'd have to go through Checkpoint Charlie to get you know, get down, get anywhere within 10, 10 platforms of Earth Prime. Yeah, unless you're setting up very remote colonies like. 40, 50, 60 platforms out. You can't set up that kind of a line of defenses. And that's a really manpower-intensive operation. Why would you want to go that far to set up a colony? Depends on what it is, the reason why your colony is there. If you're there because they've got some kind of you know, dilithium crystals on that planet, and that's the only one you've been ever to find it, well, doggone it, you're going to go out there and set up a colony to mine those dilithium crystals. Just as soon as I said that, uh, I remembered there's the, the story, the discussion earlier. Okay, 40, 40 platforms over, if somebody finds a Commonwealth planet completely, completely devoid of sentient life, but otherwise intact, yeah, or, or the, the Earth is going to send an expedition. They're going to set up an expeditionary force to push across those 40 platforms and claim that place so that they can gank the technology. And let's say it's Arrakis with spice. You know, there's a lot of people back on Earth Prime who are not fringeworthy that like to live as long as a fringeworthy. Mm-hmm. And because the spice also boosts your latent psionic abilities, hey, yeah. <laughs> you get to live long and make people's heads explode with your mind. <laughs> I, have to go, I have to go to Spice Anonymous now. <laughs> You know, if you're talking late campaign, you're talking about somebody who set up a colony like this, you know, it, it's very likely that the person who set this colony up or the small group has a very high-level crystal. And there may be things you can do with a very high-level crystal with somebody who really knows how to use it to set up your, your defense protocol or, or your, your, your entryway protocol. Like, I don't know, perhaps, um, you know, they have uh, – uh, they have the portal locked with a very high level crystal and and uh the guys you know they have somebody on the outside who greets people and the only way to say the only way you could get in and I don't even know how you do this because how do you communicate through the portal with the other guy I don't know maybe you have sentries on the other side isn't there a function where you can see through the portal no that's one of the things we've never added because it it changes the way the game run, plays very much oh that's too much okay yeah but if you lock the portal, if, if let's say on the on the world side it was a full ring station, you could lock the portal, which would mean that someone on the other side would have to have a crystal of the same power, which probably wouldn't be a good idea if you're trying to lock the portal to put somebody on the other side that could be grabbed and then ha- have it unlocked. So your alternative would be to unlock it and go through every so often to check to see if there's any mail. Do a scheduled opening, opening and closing. 
Right, and you could even put like a sign, some kind of signage out there or something saying, you know, portal is checked every daily at such and such time. Portal closed back at three. And a welcome mat on the platform in front of the portal. Or you could use the digits of pi in order to determine how long it would be until your next opening of the portal. But then again, the problem is, is that the first fringe turn comes along and blows everything off the pl- platform. Yeah, but, but you're checking it daily, so you could put it back out there every day, you know. Yeah, really. It could just be one of these things where people show up, and if they don't know when you're going to come out to let them in, then they probably don't belong there. So they'd have to know when you're going to unlock the door. Maybe unlock it once a week for an hour. Anyone who doesn't know when that hour comes about isn't really welcome to begin with. If you're a good number of platforms away, you you run the risk of being uh, basically blockaded, having any guards or pickets on the outside uh, picked off and then finding fringe pirates waiting for you when you go through the uh, portal. I mean, it's always a problem unless you have enough people to to take and hold that platform. Right. You're always going to want to be thinking, what happens if I go through and there's fringe pirates there? Or what happens if I open this thing and fringe pirates come through? So you're always going to want to have arms arms at the ready. Remember we talked about having like a um, a tethered black balloon or, or tethered floating platform above... Oh, yeah. The platform. This is where you would put that. Imagine, if you will, Jay, you've got like a balloon that's floating above the platform. Okay, like a hot air balloon or a helium balloon. Yeah, like a hot air balloon or a helium balloon, right. It's painted black. Okay. It's very well camouflaged, but it's tethered down to the platform uh, by black nylon ropes or whatever. It doesn't even have to be. It can just be floating at an altitude. Okay, sure. So the wrong element shows up and these guys just start dropping grenades down on them. Yeah. Or even bigger. Or bigger things, right. It would have to be able to move up and down and switch out guards. But yeah, you can do that. Oh, but that's not hard. We talked about this in length and it was really awesome. Ah. And Bruce, this is one of those really early shows. What I mean, this is this is like early season one. Oh yeah, we were talking about fun things you could do on the fringe pass that nobody thought about before. This colony, this would be a place to use something like that. Yeah. yeah. You've got your big envelope of helium or hydrogen, and then you just you know, compress some of the helium or hydrogen into a container. You lose loft, you go down. You want to go back up, you release more into the, into the enclosure. The old German World War I bombardment dirigibles. They were pretty heavily armed. They didn't last long against airplanes with phosphorus shells, but uh, if you didn't see it, it would, could do you a treat before things got really ugly. And with the advantage of gravity, they're not out of range of your guns for a good long while. You actually don't even need a balloon. You, you, you still attach it. You know, you got some like clamps on the edge of the platform. But you push it off the edge of the platform and let this float up in the air. Hang off the platform. You don't need balloons. Yes, you got to strap yourself down to the platform, but now you're... Isn't there air moving yes. the, on the yeah. platform space? Yeah. So there's always a gentle breeze downward towards the center and out at the platform edge. Right. That's right. Any balloon or platform like that is going to have to be prepared to cope with that. Which is why I, I wanted the balloon in the inside, because then the airflow is constantly pushing in, which would keep it centered over the platform. That would be a very good idea. And it also doesn't have any telltale attachments down onto the platform if you're trying to do things like drop explosives. You could also have a guard crew on the reverse side of the platform with periscopes. periscopes. And if they saw somebody they didn't like, they could set up an attack. 
You, you could even put your bombs on the top of the platform with your triggers running down to the bomb side of the platform. What's this say? It says bop. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, you just use a, a debt cord. Fuse igniters. Yeah, fuse igniters are totally, are totally chemical. So, you can, yeah, you can do it. Off it goes. Fuse burns. Fuse burns down to a non-electric blasting cap. The blasting cap is a much more unstable material. It detonates and sympathetically detonates debt cord. No electricity necessary. But that's not our topic. <laughs> okay. But it, but it does make for a platform-capable non-electric IED. Oh, yes, absolutely. Right. Which is good for defending this colony we're speaking of. So it doesn't take much to secure your platform outside your colony as long as you're willing to blow up to smithereens anything that comes onto the platform. In World War II, uh, they had uh, what they called the Red Ball Express, just lines and lines of deuce-and-a-half trucks that would drive down these uh, roads to try to supply the Allied forces at the front. And you'd kind of want to set up something like that, lots of trucks going really quick to resupply a colony at, at a distance. Assuming, of course, that you didn't want it to be mostly self-sufficient. If you could work it to be self-sufficient, that would be easier, yes. Yeah. Depends on how big the colony is. Obviously, if it's like thousands of people then and it's not self-sufficient, you're going to have to have that Red Ball Express, sure. But later on in the, in the campaign, you're, I'm pretty sure we're going to have dedicated vehicles that are going to be very large and very long, essentially road trains. Doesn't the Fringe Path system have a dedicated train railway built into it? It's not that wide. Okay. Since we basically went from the eight foot wide pathway to the 41 foot wide pathway i thought it was 47 no it's 41 it was a misprint yeah, you would see a road train or at least a red ball express for places like the the the, the dead the dead commonwealth city because it'd be a while before you can find food or be able to grow food there well yeah if you're sitting there trying to tinker around with all the tech at this oh my gosh we have you know this Commonwealth tech, this is fantastic. How do we work it? Um, we're going to need supplies while we, you know, get this figured out until we learn how to work a food machine. You'd also want to have a scout service of, of people who go and try to figure out how to be self-sufficient on planets. Basically, uh, the survivalists or, or hardcore gardeners who go out and find plants and things and figure out how to make any given world self-sufficient. Yeah, so folks, in the Fringeworthy D20... The Explorer class and the Driver class are going to come into this and play into this big time because you're going to need supplies coming in. Even if you have self-sufficiency where, okay, we grow, you get this colony going. We get our own food. You know, we have our own buildings and everything. There's still things you're going to need from Earth Prime, even if the even if the drivers are just delivering news. Unless it is a dead biological world. Let's say this Commonwealth world is like Coruscant from Star Wars, where it is a planet-wide city. If you try to apply anything like hard science to that, it, it'll collapse immediately. This is me hand-waving. You don't see it on, on the thing. but I, No, I'm sorry. I, hear, I can hear the breeze now if your hand's waving. Okay, go ahead. With the scouts, you're still going to need, because they don't always explore rural Scouts still explore, whether it's an urban or rural environment, so you're still going to need those scouts as well. You might have specialization of scouts. 
So your your adventuring teams are your first in guys to say to poke it and say, okay, it's like this and this and this, and we're going to need these kind of specialist guys to really delve into it. And then they take that uh, information back to the Fringeworthy headquarters, which designs a more specific mission aimed at that particular world. You'll eventually find all flavors of crazy somewhere on that system. You'll have mad gardeners and mad architects who want to go and explore the Fringe Pass, too. Does not prime, but it's not at all. You got uh, seven other choices to look for possible resources. You might be able to take the trash from that world and sell it on, another, on the world across the platform for supplies. Yeah, yeah. So, you, know, you may not you may have to drive a two hundred feet to get supplies. Buy, buy low, sell high. <laughs> yeah, that is one of the big advantages of trying to set your first colonies up on an alternate platform is that you do are very close to other worlds which may be in a good position to help you. If you put it on a prime, yeah, you got eight portals to work with, but eight portals to a primitive world doesn't help you that much unless your primary reason to be on that world is to draw resources from it and send it back to Earth Prime. Well, also, another thing, Bruce, about Prime versus Alternate for uh, Colony, if you're on that colony and you got to defend it, what's easier to defend? Eight portals where you got to spurt out your, sor- your, your resources or one portal where you can bottleneck your enemy and just pick them off at that one portal as they come through? I guess it would depend on who the enemy was. If the other eight portals are going to places thousands of miles away, then if they come to attack you, then it's they've had a big, long journey to get there. Let's say, you know, if you have it on a prime and you have your portal where you've come through and you're defending that, that's still what, oh, God, and I am not a tactician. Pincer attack. I mean, you can have, they'll come in through the other portals and, you know. you. Bruce just pointed out the other portal could be thousands of miles away. It could be on an island. So fringe pirates in an armored car, they come out on an island halfway across the planet from you. Who cares? They're fine. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But we did say this is going to be 99.9% of the time, this is going to be a late campaign topic. So fringe pirates, ugh. Not likely. Melor, maybe. Most likely, we all know what the late campaign topic enemy is going to be. For all we know, it's going to be a, a block of Romans. You've gone to the uh, the Pathway books. How many how many Roman cultures are there out there? Oh, there's quite a few, yeah. Yeah, there's quite a few. You can imagine them forming a power block, getting together and saying, Pax Romana Universa, and... Setting up colonies where they can where they can do well, sure, but uh, okay, your colonies on a prime, okay, you're out there to scout some ruins to dig to do basically uh, archaeology. You're digging up an old city, right? And so, who's going to show up on that platform, and what are they going to show up with, and what do you have to plan for to defend against? A scouting party would be, you know, some guys to go through and take a look. You might get into a gunfight with that, but an armored column coming through. Yeah, that's going to be a problem. As it's late campaign, most of the folks are they're in the new Commonwealth that you're that's being formed are going to probably have higher tech than we than you have at the start of the game. If, even though they may be Romans, they may be Romans walking around walking around with flechette guns. Yeah, but still, you know, uh, guys are different from a tank. 
a tank at the same technolo- technology base coming through your portal is going to ruin your day if you haven't figured if you haven't figured it out. But how would the Romans know to send one of their tank legions to that portal? Oh, like you said, scouts. They send a scout team ahead. So mostly what you want to do is you want to make it difficult for scouts to get in and out so they report, screw this, it's not worth it. Then you have to depend on the tactics of the of whoever is doing this. Depending, some may say, didn't come back? Okay, we'll come back to this later with a full force. Well, who else came back? You know, They'll look for the easy targets first. Then they come back and say, okay, Team 5 did not come back from this world. This is a dangerous world. We need to go through with a full legion. Yeah. You could lose a lot of legions that way, finding out that it was a alt space or brain suckers or something. It, it all depends on how many fringe worthy you have available to you. That's true. A legion full of fringe worthy would be awful expensive. Not every colonizing colony is coming from Earth Prime. It may come from other members of the new Commonwealth. What does that change, John? What does that what does that mean really? You're looking at different mindsets. A Roman mindset is going to be totally different than, say, my mindset from Victorian Earth versus the mindset from Golden Horde Earth. Can you uh, summarize the differences in mindset, John? It comes right back to what's the colony for? What's it doing there? And that drives the design of it. I still think that most colonies are going to be there to bring resources back to the home world. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the obvious, yeah. But how they do it may be vastly different. The Romans may show up in force and then basically put the locals to work doing get, doing the resource extraction. The way they actually go about setting the colonies up may be different. I mean, uh, uh, Peter, you, you studied the, the Mongols. How would the Mongols do a colony? How different would they be in their colonies? Mm, that's kind of tough because they're nomads. I don't see them setting up a colony. I see them moving and moving. So in their, in their case, but they did build cities. They, you know, Kublai Khan did live in a, in a capital city. Uh, they did. They did. Okay, so how would the Mongols? All right, so, hmm. Okay, so they're not going to set up, I would imagine they're not going to set up like hard fortifications. They're, they're a mobile group. So any threat that comes through, they're probably going to be, they're probably going to set their colony up some distance from the portal so that you have to travel to get to it. And then... The first place you come to would probably be some kind of checkpoint of some kind, uh, which would probably lie right between the portal and wherever it is you're going. And they would probably put some scouts there, and if they saw a force coming in or something you know, dangerous, those scouts would probably shoot back to the, the main city and then, and then bring up their horsemen. So uh, you're talking about uh, wallless cities. Cause the Mongols, I don't, I don't believe they did walls at all because – they they saw those as a weakness because they would use people's walls against them, and they're they're very mobile. So I mean, if we're talking fringe worthy Mongols, maybe they've migrated to motorcycles. I don't know, uh, depending on how far <laughs> they you know, it, it could be anything. ATVs, yeah, yeah, ATVs or or by the hovercraft. I don't know, but by that time they're going to be highly mobile. An invading force who isn't prepared is going to be sorry because they're going to come in and they're going to think. That you know they can go straight for whatever base it is that they've they've that the Mongols have set up. They're, they're going to find that 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 was a bad strategy, because the Mongols are going to they're going to flank them. You got to remember these guys. They didn't believe that there was any unscrupulous way of winning. It, it was all about winning. The only dishonor was in losing. Their main bit purpose for visiting any given portal would be to raid. 
Yeah, and they would be raiders. And this, if they were going to set up a colony here, I would imagine that this would just be a place. This would mainly be a place to raise and train their children, and to uh, store their goods. So this would be like a a stockpile. So even if you did destroy it, what you've killed is their, you know, some of their women and their children, and and probably stolen some of their goods. And woe be to you if they should find you. Uh, it sounds like what, you, what you're saying is that the the Mongols show up in force, demand tribute, and they say, we, we, we'll be back in a year. You best have tribute. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much how they worked. No, and that, you're right, John. That's exactly how they worked. I see the, the Mongols of a Golden Horde not being a majority at a colony. I would see them as like, oh, yeah, we got some Golden Horde with us. Why? They make fantastic scouts and survivalists in the flora and fauna of a world. You give them a knife, a bow and arrow, and a horse, and they'll have this place covered in, like, you know, they'll set up a perimeter, they'll know what natural types of traps and pitfalls there are, they'll be able to see, you know, what type of flora and fauna are active here because they'll be able to see all the tracks. I don't see them as a major colonizing force. I see them as other people the Romans, the Victorians, the Earth Primers, employing their services, let's put it that way. That's what I would see the Golden Horde being used as. This is totally a Roman specialty. Well, it's also possible that, like the Romans, they would go in and they would dominate an area. They would say, okay, we're going to be back in a while to collect our tribute. We're going to leave a small cadre of people here, not just to oversee you, but also because we have this book of laws that we expect everybody to to obey, and if they don't, it's a sentence of death. Right, Peter? Well, actually, you know, it's it's funny. The Mongols didn't do that, and the, the Romans may have. The Mongols weren't like that, and this, this I think this is this is part of why they were so successful. No, they they really did have a a, a law, a, a set of laws that they fall. Everyone was supposed to follow. We, we covered that during the the uh, one on the Mongols. Also, remember uh, that what happened to the Mongols? They took over. They took over lots of lots of areas, and when they settled, they started evolving away from being Mongols as we picture them. And so the conquest changed them eventually more than they changed the places they conquered. And so you might see a similar dynamic happening on the Fringe Pass, where Mongols come out and raid for a while, but some of them stick and, become, and go native at the places where, they've, where they until recently were raiding. Actually, though, but but from a lot of what I've read is, and, and Bruce, they may have done this in, in some of the locations, especially areas closer to home, like closer to their homeland. But they were pretty, they were pretty cool about a lot of things. Like they would let you have any religion you wanted to have, and they would let you keep pretty much what government you had. No, no, no th- these these weren't governmental strictures or religious strictures. These were how, you, well, other than. Uh, they set up like viceroys and things like that, and you had to obey them utterly. Um, it, was, it was all in this book that, that was originally written by the Khan. Well, yeah, it, and again, like I said, it, it depends. It really depends on the location because the further out from the empire that uh, an area got, uh, the harder the, the Khan knew, the harder it was to control. So he didn't try to control them as harshly. What he controlled them through was fear. So, like, say, for example, you're talking about areas, say, in the Persian Empire that he had conquered. Well, he can't sustain that. He, he It would have a hard time keeping people there. 
he, he might. Some of the cities they did, the prince, like one of the, the sons, like his son or another son would stay there and, and take control. I, I think I was thinking mainly of, of the areas that they would just hit and run. They would take over and say, all right, we control you now, but we're going to go. Uh, but when we come back, we want our tribute and we want our soldiers that you're going to supply us. And any town that veered away from that, who decided that they weren't going to do that, in most cases, they would burn it to the ground. They would literally burn the entire town to the ground and kill everybody except for a few people. Right. And then they would scatter those people out to tell everyone else, hey, look, all you got to do is just give them what they're asking for, which isn't much. But if yeah. you don't... They'll kill everybody in the place. Yep. They'll, they'll slaughter you. Right. And they would have to do this not under the auspice of the uh, IDA because that's definitely against uh, the IDA's charter. This would, this would be one of their own colonies being driven by their own world and not in any way answerable back to IDA. Sure. And I'm thinking like a warlord, like a rogue warlord maybe. Maybe somebody who doesn't work for the Great Khan. Maybe a sub-general of his that, that got tired of dealing with him, wanted to strike out on his own, and started his own sort of golden, golden horde out there. One of the reasons for creating a colony is so you can basically go do what your philosophy says. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure there will be some people like that. Uh, they say, hey, you know, the, the Khan's gotten weak. He's gotten too buddy-buddy with the IDA and this so-called Commonwealth. We're going to go out there and we're going to you know, show you how – you know, how to conquer a world and how to make a great culture, you know, with our group of 50 to 100 of that culture. And then they go off and they start doing this. It worked for the uh, conquistadors. Yeah, and Rome didn't, I, I, I didn't want to say they formed colonies. They, they sort of did. But a lot of times the reason they were going places was not to, it wasn't to colonize. It was to make sure that they didn't cause trouble for Rome. They went to Gaul to, to pacify the Gauls, keep them from attacking Rome. They went to across the Great the, the Channel to pacify Britannia, make sure those those stupid those stupid Celts didn't come over and cause more problems. Their colonies were more along the line of make sure that you know the neighbors neighbors stay quiet. Hey, hey, watch it. Those Romans were slaughtering your ancestors too, John. This is something they really worked hard at. They oh, built yeah. settler colonies. And they emplaced veterans there specifically for the pacification of those regions. And they shipped cohorts completely across the empire to make sure that the unit they emplaced there had no loyalties to the local population. So they would bring Scythians from modern-day Ukraine all the way to Caledonia, which is England now. And they would take Gaulish troops and send them to Anatolia, which is Turkey. Because they knew their troops would be loyal to Rome and not to the local people. Once the Roman soldier reached 25 years of service, he got to retire on his 20 acres or whatever, where he was provided a home and a mule and, and some slaves, and then he settled in and made the area Roman, just yeah. pacifying the land. So let me ask you guys this. We've got how these guys operate, right? And we're talking about this, and we've gotten basically into a, a conqueror colony type of thing, which is cool, because I see that. But... That's a lot of effort, a lot of manpower. It takes a lot of Romans. Okay, so so why? Why would they do this? Why, if you were a Mongol horde, why would you attack some, you know, some pocket stop or some uh, alternate and set up a colony there? And there are some obvious reasons. I'm not saying that there isn't, and I'm like trying to look for a reason. I know there are. I'm just asking you guys so that we can talk about this. You know, like what what comes to your mind? Definitely the raping and pillaging. So, some of the burning, but 
Raping and pillaging, mostly, yeah. Uh, oh, gosh, there's several ways or several reasons for setting up a colony, but I think the most obvious one is going to be commercial. What do you mean for, like, Paul, for, like, trade? He did it for the monies. Yeah, you're doing it for the profit. It's All you're, on the bench. you're setting up a whaling colony. You're setting up a place to because there's diamonds there. Well, in that case, then it's not so much trade. If it's for a particular resource, you're just looking for resources. There's a difference between just going for one resource and just taking all mine, 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 and seeing another culture doing trade. There is a difference. There is a difference. Let me look at it like this. So, so let's say you're you're some warlord or or nation or whatever. It d- doesn't matter. It could be any one of these things. You've you've conquered this alternate. Let's say it's an alternate. You've, so you've conquered it, or at least enough of the area around the portal that that you have control of it. And you get these people mining diamonds for you, and you tell them, yeah, we won't come in and slaughter your people wholesale if you give us X amount of diamonds per year. So. We must assume that there is some home world or some home base that these guys are taking all this stuff back to. So would this be – say, for example, you have a prime somewhere, someone other than IDET, another organization like IDET except you know, conquering a conquering nation. And they go out around the portals around them, set up their colonies, exploit them, and then bring all those riches back and then use them on their world. I really see this happening more likely on an alternate because then you have one world which is fairly advanced and it is therefore going out to the other less advanced worlds on its own alternate and it's exploiting them. Sadly, history gives us a lot of instruction books on how on how nations like to do that. Oh, sure, sure, yeah. This is This is a very highly likely situation. I mean, this is... This is probably the default in a lot of cases. The British County of Hong Kong. The conquistadors and exploiters give the PCs somebody to shoot. Shoot, shoot them early, shoot them often. <laughs> You're right, Jay. I mean, this, this actually, from, from our standpoint, because we're essentially playing the good guys, as it were, this gives us people to kill. <laughs> <laughs> we're the good guys. We need people to kill. <laughs> exactly. You get the irony in that, right? Yeah. <laughs> But all these people who are setting up colonies are therefore bad guys that we must put a stop to. Sure, I mean it, it. It depends. If you're running a Savage Worlds campaign and you want to keep it nice and simple and clean like that, you know, where hey, we good guys, they bad guys, great. Fringe Nazis, they goose step around and take everybody's stuff. Any question? Since this is late campaign, and obviously medical technology is going to be advanced. If you clone a fringe-worthy person, is the clone fringe-worthy? That's a good question. No. Okay. Easily answered. (laughs) (laughs) That gets rid of completely fringe-worthy Roman legions. I thought it was a good question. It is a good question. Your clone is no more likely to be fringe-worthy than your twin brother is. That that opens up an ugly possibility of using fringe-worthy women to mass-produce fringe-worthy people. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's pretty gnarly. You can see fringe Nazis doing something that nar- – that- Yes, Jay. Absolutely. It's even worse than that, Jay, because what you can do is you can take a fringe-worthy woman and then plant her with any number of fetuses long enough for her to walk through a portal and then take them out of her again and then implant them in regular people. 
you can make yourself a fringe-worthy baby farm without too much trouble at all. Yeah, that would be a very dark eugenics program. That would be another bad guy to go for us good guys to have to shoot at. Definitely lots of shooting necessary there. Trav, when you do the Coptics. Oh, that's oh, 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 yeah. Oh, yes. I think you just made Trav's day there. Oh, no. A shutter just went down my spine. That just, ooh. Oh, that's a Coptic tactic, right? Oh, I think you just made Trav's day a little too much there. Well, because they have Korean War level 1950s technology, they could start dabbling into things like that. Yeah, so surely could. Yeah. Ooh. Okay. All right. Let's get back on topic here. I don't want to go too far. <laughs> Maybe you're going to be cackling like a mad old Nazi all night. <laughs> this is Bruce Sheffer saying. There are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. This is Blix. Don't hate the game, hate the players. This is Jay. Keep it simple. The players are going to complicate it for you. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Yo, brothers. This was the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial reproduction, no derivatives, and sucker, you best attribute this to the folks at TriTech Games. And if you don't, we'll be having your sorry butts, because we're some bad mothers. Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.